This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. Hey guys, today I've got a totally different kind of episode for you. Instead of interviewing another badass business owner like I normally do, it's just going to be me today because I want to talk about something called money stories. And I also want to share with you my own personal money stories. Money stories are the stories we internalize because of events in our past, stories that shape the mindset that we have about money today. And these stories are so important because they determine how we spend, invest, save or don't save, and how we feel about money, as well as all of our hangups and issues around it. I was inspired to do this episode by Jake Jorgovin, uh, my guest on this podcast a couple of episodes ago. You may remember, and if not, you should definitely go check that episode out. He did an episode on his podcast about his stories around money, and I really enjoyed it. And it made me realize how unique, funny, and sometimes bizarre our stories around money can be, and how important it is for each of us to know what our money story is and how helpful it is to listen to other people's money stories to get insight into our own. So today, I want to share with you my own money story and how it has evolved over the years and where it came from. And you guys know I love talking about money. But while some people like talking about making money, most people never want to talk about how they feel or think about money and where their issues with it really come from. And it's funny because... If you weren't paying too close attention, I talk about money and profit so much that I would imagine it might seem like I'm all about the money, 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 but it's the complete opposite. The reason I talk about money so much is because it's the key and the tool to getting all the things I actually want, none of which are money. For me, money is time and money is freedom. It's a tool to be able to work on projects that I want. Well, we'll get into that. So I'm going to start by just telling you some background about where I've come from with money. I had a really odd perspective and environment when it came to money growing up. Very confusing. <laughs> and and you'll see why. My dad was an accountant who worked for himself my entire life. So he was an entrepreneur selling services, something that I didn't even like realize until a couple of years ago because he didn't talk about it much. And my mom was a an educator, so she went back to school to get her masters when I was a young kid, when I was like 3 or 4, and I watched her go to school at night and then become a teacher. My mom is an immigrant. She came here from Colombia when she was 12 and it was very important to her that she teach bilingual children, specifically disadvantaged bilingual children. And that made a really big impression on me because I remember when I was in middle school, she was offered a job a couple blocks from our house at a private school, which would have been so convenient and she-she and nice for all of us. And she turned it down. She chose to go work in the South Bronx which meant that she had to leave the house at, you know, five thirty, six o'clock every morning to get up there. A very challenging environment, very challenging kids to work with. But that was really important to her. And that is very foundational to who I am. She didn't become a teacher 
to just teach anybody. She really wanted to teach the people who needed it the most, and she wanted to use the skills that she had. She speaks, you know, perfect Spanish, so she wanted to use her Spanish skills as well. You wouldn't know that, by the way. She doesn't have an accent or anything. Uh, she ended up becoming a principal elementary school, though she's retired now. And then my dad was self-employed. And because my mom was in education and my dad was self-employed, we had a lot of flexibility in our life. Like my mom had all the summers off, you know, and so, and my dad worked for himself. So I grew up with a lot of flexibility in our schedule and just a sense of that time and time to spend with people you love and care about and, and doing things was really, really important to both of my parents. And I also grew up hearing my dad say, basically, he would rather have time than money. <laughs> so so obviously, I got that from somewhere, very specifically from, from him. The other interesting thing about my dad is that even though he is a CPA, he never, ever talked about money to me. And, and so I, everything I've learned about money, I had to learn my, on my own. It was really weird because I loved numbers. I was always into math. Um, I was an economics major. I mean, I wanted to do the numbers. And for some reason, my dad was just not interested in talking about money with me growing up. I was also a very serious dancer growing up. And when I went to college and told my parents I was going to be an econ major, my dad was like, why don't you be a dance major? <laughs> so weird because, you know, nobody, I feel like everyone's story is the opposite of that. But I know where that comes from. My dad went to he went to Columbia University, but then he went to a cooking school in the city right after he graduated from college, and he loved cooking, and he's an awesome cook. But as soon as he graduated, my grandfather, who was a tax lawyer for the IRS, he told him, okay, well, now when are you going to get a real job? And that's how my dad ended up as a CPA, and I think he... I think he thinks in retrospect like he wishes he had done something else because it wasn't his passion. So I think I'm you know, connecting the dots. I'm pretty sure that that's why he was like, why are you being an econ major? Be a dance major. Like pursue your dream of the arts. No surprise. He absolutely loved when I brought home an artist. as <laughs> my husband, my boyfriend and then husband. So anyway, those are formative aspects of my upbringing. There was this other weird thing about growing up in New York City specifically. If you don't, if you didn't grow up in New York City, Steve has informed me how different it is here than everywhere else and how I don't really have any perspective on that. But I have an even more different perspective than people who just come here. When I think back on all the people I grew up with, we all had this weird highbrow, lowbrow thing where like it, it, it was everybody was very privileged in many, many ways. I was very privileged going up, but I was surrounded by so much privilege and so much wealth that I didn't feel like it. So, you know, for example, we lived in a modest apartment in in Manhattan, but we lived in Manhattan. People think that's, you know, my friends, some, my best friend that I spent, I mean, she was like my the, my surrogate family. Her, her parents were like my surrogate family. My best friend grew up in a full floor penthouse loft in Soho, but it was rent controlled. And her parents were artists. They were photographers. My other very good friend, grew up in like one of the fanciest buildings on the Upper West Side, this enormous, ginormous apartment that it probably is $30,000 a month now. Her parents still live there. They pay like less than $1,000 a month rent control. Like I grew up in New York City surrounded by people growing up 
who who either purchased their homes, their apartments in the 70s or got in on their apartment in the 70s. So I was surround I was like living in this world where all of my friends lived in very nice apartments or houses or brownstones, but their parents weren't wealthy, but they were all professionals. All of this is just to say that it was very confusing. It was not clear how much things cost, how much people made was kind of all over the place. You know, I've got this friend whose parents are artist photographers, but they live in this crazy, fancy apartment. My other friend in the $30,000 a month apartment, her mom is also a painter and her dad is an an author. So I had all these friends whose parents were artists or professionals, like therapists and stuff. Anyway, and, and us too. So I lived in this apartment in Manhattan. We had a country house in Connecticut, it wasn't like a huge fancy country house, but we had a country house. That's a very privileged place to come from. We always had a car, but it was always a used car. And we had a, a speedboat, but it was a used speedboat. It was like always breaking down. And I'm sharing these things because this is such a privileged place to come from. And compared to a lot of people and compared to a lot of people in my family, even it was very clear that we had so much more than so many other people. And also, I went to school on the Upper East Side on Park Avenue, surrounded by private schools, hung out with a lot of private school kids, and I'm talking kids who have planes. So compared to all the private school kids, we were very middle class. Compared to the rest of the country, we were probably very upper middle class. But because that's not where we lived, um, and that's not who I was surrounded with, it really warps your perspective. That plus the fact that my parents never talked about money, which is, by the way, a huge privilege if you are not talking about money. But the only time they did talk about it was in reference to when things were very expensive. So, you know, my dad loves a good deal and just very quick to comment on like, oh, this is, you know, oh, that's like that would be too expensive. I so I, I I feel like I grew up feeling pretty thrifty and like savvy about not overspending. My parents are not big on like brands or anything, which is why I'm not big on those things either. I'm just not used to thinking that that's matters. So then I went to college. I went to Wesleyan University, very expensive, took out loans, but my parents paid for a lot of it. Again, a very privileged place to be. I actually didn't know how privileged because we didn't really talk about it. Again, my parents like didn't want to talk about the money. I ended up creating creating a friend group around other people who had a very similar interaction with money. And it also means that when I graduated from college, I had no idea how much money it took to live <laughs> or how much people made or what it would take to live. The only perspective I had on any of this was that my first job before college, my first first job after babysitting was as a hostess. And I made $10 an hour junior year of high school. And then after that, I was a bartender. And I, I caught on pretty quickly that bartending was a lucrative thing to do. Certainly more lucrative than any of the jobs that I saw my friends hour, getting for hourly wages. So when I graduated from college, that was all I had to go on. How much bartenders can make. And, you know, for a bartending is not an easy job. I really enjoyed it. And I liked that the hard work and the hustle. And I liked that I could make more money if I was good and fast and friendly. But you know, after a 14, 16 hour shift where you get home at seven o'clock in the morning, and you've got like three or $400 in your pocket, that was like a really good night. 
And I remember for a long time feeling like that was my bar. I have to make at least this much doing something else for it to make sense. Of course, now it's it's almost quaint thinking of that. But it is so fascinating to me to think back on those times and how limited my perspective about how much things cost and how much you're worth and how much you can make was because it was all based on the couple of numbers that I really knew. And I had to find those numbers myself. And then one day, this really sticks out to me when I think about money stories. Then one day, we started our business after being in the British Virgin Islands on this farm for four months, living off of as little as possible. All the money we spent on that trip was mostly just the the plane tickets, which were prohibitive. But that was all we spent money on that whole time. When we came home, all we wanted to do was support ourselves. And all we knew about selling graphic design work was what Steve had been getting as a freelancer. So I think the most he got as a freelancer was $30 an hour. And that seemed pretty good to us. So we just started by trying to get $30 an hour. And after uh, a few months, we raised it to 40. And then I got hired by someone on Craigslist who, she hired us to do some design work. She was a, a web developer. And she was kind enough to tell us she paid us for the first project. And then she said, you need to raise your prices. <laughs> so she told me we need to raise them. So I ended up raising them to $65 an hour, I remember. And I just thought that was so much money. $65 an hour. I mean, that was insane. That was more than I ever made bartending. So it seemed like a lot. And I remember proudly telling my dad one day, so this is only a few months into our business. I remember calling him up and being like, well, we're getting paid $65 an hour. And he just, he just didn't even skip a beat. He was like, that's not a lot of money. I was like, what do you mean? How much, how much should it be? <laughs> I have no way. It's the first time you're saying anything about this. He was like, well, you know, like consultants could make like $200 an hour. And I was like, $200 an hour. That sounds insane. But Mind you, I am, how old was I at that point? I'm like 27, 28, and it's kind of the first time my dad has given me any insight into how much someone can make doing something. And I don't remember what I, it's not like I raised my price to $200 an hour at that point, but it it definitely warped how I saw it. And it, I spent the next few years, everything I did in my business, I was finding out for the first time. So that woman who suggested that we raise our prices from 40 to 65. She also invited me to BNI. So she's the person who introduced me to networking, uh, another world that I didn't even know existed uh, until I went to my first meeting and it sounded like the answer to all my prayers, which now I know differently. But at the time, I, I had no idea. I had no, again, no perspective. I didn't have enough experiences in this world at all to be able to evaluate it. So when they told me, look, it's a group of people. They're like your unofficial marketing and sales team. I was like, that sounds great. I count me in. And then I spent an, a good year and a half networking really hardcore, which I've talked about on many occasions. And I won't talk about that too much right now. But I will say that networking in New York City specifically, and the kinds of businesses I was networking with surrounded me with people who were charging by the hour. Everybody but there was charging by the hour. And I assumed that that was how you did it. 
And so that's how I continued to do it. I mean, that's how we started doing it because we didn't have any other perspective. And like I said before, I always liked numbers. So even from the very beginning, I mean, even on our trip in the in the islands, I was keeping a detailed record of every dollar we spent. I mean, literally, we spent $6 at the supermarket to buy a treat of an apple and a piece of cheese <laughs> to go with our veggies and, and rice. I kept meticulous notes because we had so little money. And I continued to do that when we started our business. And I was very frugal because my goal was only to just support ourselves. So those first few months, I remember specifically everything. We could get away with living off of $3,000 a month. And so I knew that's all we had to make. And as long as we could make that, we would be okay. And that was my first goal. Just make enough to cover our expenses. Now, $3,000 a month meant that we were being very frugal about how we ate, what we bought, where we bought it. I remember this one time. So we live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is a pretty expensive neighborhood. We had a deal where we could be the supers of our building. So we were getting a break on our rent. But in exchange, we were cleaning the hallways, taking care of the trash, putting it out every trash night, dealing with the tenants and stuff. So it was like another job that we had, but it meant that we didn't have to pay that that additional, I think it was like $500 a month in rent. But we lived in this nice neighborhood, which meant that the supermarket down the street was very expensive. And so I didn't shop there ever. It was an emergency supermarket. We always went to the place that was a good 20 minute walk away. And, you know, things like, I'll never forget, like a can of beans, right, at a regular supermarket should be a dollar, should be 99 cents at most. At the fancy supermarket down our street, like a block from us, cans of beans, well, now I know they're like three fifty. And when you're counting, when you're pinching pennies, when you're counting every dollar, you can't buy a can of beans for three fifty when it's 99 cents at the place down the street or, you know, far away. So I remember specifically one day sending Steve to get something and I assumed he would go to the right one and Steve's not thinking about these numbers so as anal as I am with numbers Steve is like not even paying attention he he's okay not having money and he'll like spend his last dollar and then starve obviously that's not how I want to live so I was in in charge of all of it but I remember one day he came home and he bought a can of beans at the fancy place because we needed it for our meal or something and I like almost sobbed because it was so stressful and dramatic that he would be so flippant about spending this money that we didn't have and and be so cavalier about it. And of course, he didn't know because he wasn't paying attention to all of these things. But I was like, he didn't even look at the price. He just bought it. And that was very enraging for me. You can imagine if, if every penny counts, it's like we could have had th- three meals with <laughs> three fifty that you spent on that stupid can of beans. I think a lot of that stress just came from not knowing. I didn't have a business yet that I could rely on. I didn't know how I was generating money. I didn't know how to make money. We were living on cash. So I had to generate enough cash each month to pay for everything. I didn't use credit cards to help us at all. The idea of having any sort of balance on my credit card was very scary and I didn't want to do it. But what that meant was I was like in a constant state of panic. Those first few months of business, we were hustling 
hard. And $3,000, we blew that out of the water pretty quickly. And I remember about four or five months in, we had our first $10,000 month. Now, again, we were charging by the hour. We were working all the time, but we were just so thankful to make $10,000. That was incredible. That felt, we felt rich. Again, we were so rich. I didn't care how much we were working. I could die happy that I had been successful. It was so nice to just have a decent amount of cash coming in for the first time really in our lives where we were doing it, we were doing it our own way. And I wasn't bartending. So I wasn't working in the middle of the night. And that felt really good. And about a year and a half later, I remember we had about $20,000 in the bank at the end of the year. And that felt like we were also rich. And wow, like $20,000, like I've never seen $20,000 before. And I just felt so good about it. And that's when we hired our first employee. Now, in retrospect, that was not nearly enough money to have, especially given that our business did not have a clear plan or strategy or anything reliable to fall back on. But $20,000 was more money than I'd ever even imagined being able to have. So hiring an employee felt doable. You know, it just didn't seem like it was that crazy. But, you know, this is the thing that I would tell my younger self. I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't have any perspective on it. And I hadn't hired a business coach yet at that time. Like I hadn't had any outside perspective. The only outside perspective I had this entire time was watching everybody I was networking with. And the one time my dad said $65 an hour is not a lot of money. <laughs> that was it. And so I was, you know, blind, walking around blind, trying to figure this out myself. So there was a benefit to that too, because I think part of the way that I've been able to get to where I did eventually relatively quickly was because I had no perspective. And so I was trying to figure out what the best thing was. And it took me a few years, but I got there because I never really knew that I never had an answer that I was following. I was just trying to figure out how to make it work. So I was entertaining different models. Anyway, so I hired this this first and then second employee and we got an office. Oh yeah, $20,000 and we were like we need an office. We can't be living and working in our apartment anymore, which was a good idea because our apartment was very small and we never left it because <laughs> we worked all the time and we you know, one of one of our computers was at the foot of our bed. Poor Steve sometimes would like literally never leave our bedroom because he would wake up and then just start working. We had zero work-life balance. So getting the studio was a really big deal. And, you know, we hustled for the next year and a half with the employees. We tried all kinds of things. We had cash coming in, but it was going right back out. We were just trying to charge as much as we possibly could. That was it. We were just trying to get as much as we possibly could from each client. We were overworking all of them. We were working all the time. To us, it was all about, okay, charge as much as you possibly can and then work as much as is needed in order to have the clients be very happy with you because that's all that matters, right? You want happy clients because they're your referral source. So you want to keep them happy. Gosh, how naive I was because <laughs> what I ended up doing was overworking everything. It was not prof profitable at all. And even though I was working all the time, hustling all the time to find clients, bending over backwards for every client, we still ended up in $40,000 of debt doing all of that. Now, part of that debt also had to do with the fact that I did start working with some business coaches and I started to evaluate 
with one of my coaches how much we were charging for a project, how long they took, and whether or not they it made any sense. And when we looked at even the rough numbers, it was clear we were grossly undercharging for how much we were working. Now, that didn't mean that we could just increase our price. What I know now is that it meant we needed to decrease our how we worked and increase our price. We needed to make our process much tighter and increase the price so that it was a profitable offering. But I didn't understand that that at the time. And I'm sure he was trying to explain that to me, but I couldn't hear it because apparently I have to learn everything on my own <laughs> by failing first. I'm very good at learning things if I fail at them uh, first. So I've tried and failed at a lot of things and that's how I know so much. So what I ended up doing was just increasing the price. And I just kept increasing the price because I knew that we needed to charge more in order for our business to stay afloat. And because I increased the price very quickly and because I felt really sure of myself that we were overworking and that they weren't paying us enough and they didn't value what we were doing enough. I was increasing the price and feeling a little indignant when I would say it and when people would try to bargain with me. I felt like they just don't understand the value of branding. I've heard a lot of people say this. I felt that too. Like, believe me, I was like, they have no idea what it takes to go in to do this. They have no idea how much work we put into creating these amazing designs and they don't know how valuable it is. What I know now is that we were also, that might be true, but we were also working too much on them. Not because we were working too hard, but because we didn't have process. It was like a blank check when it came to how much time Steve and our junior designer would work. It was just like work till it's amazing. There was no structure, which meant that, that and these creatives, you know, creative people, they want to keep working. They love what they do. So they're like, yeah, I'll work I'll just keep working on this until somebody stops me. So even though I was raising the price over and over again, I wasn't keeping track of the process and how to keep to rein it in. And I wasn't keeping track of how to pitch it so that it was actually worth that. I was so concerned with it needs to be this price because of how much time we spend and not concerned with it needs to be this price because we are delivering this amount of value in a way that somebody else can't at a lower price. And the reason we didn't have that was because we didn't have any sort of process and we still didn't understand the, the value and we weren't really bringing strategy yet. We were starting to, but we weren't fully invested in the strategy. So a year and a half after we started the business. We hired the employees and got the studio. And a year and a half after that, we ended up in debt. And we ended up in debt because we had a lot of overhead. We had the two employees, we had the studio, and then just running the business and then, you know, living our life as frugally as we did. Still, things cost money. And then we also weren't closing as many clients because now that I was pitching projects at twenty and $30,000, we were in the ring with so many other companies. So even though we did a pretty good job of pitching ourselves, I mean, to the extent that we got pretty far in a lot of these pitches, ultimately we weren't closing a lot of them because we weren't making the case correctly. And so it didn't take that long to get into $40,000 of credit card debt. It just, it just took a couple of months of not closing any clients and of spending money. And, you know, that's when I we famously looked at our business and our finances and we said we have to do something drastic and we had to let our employees go, which was 
devastating. I cried when I told them I felt so terrible. We had no money. I still gave them severance, the best severance I could anyway. And then as soon as that happened, everything kind of changed because our our overhead just shrunk. And all of a sudden, we realized now that our overhead is so much less, we could make this $40,000 back pretty quickly. And that's when we started doing the brand ups exclusively for $3,000. And within a couple of months, we were out of debt and in the black, flush with cash again, because we had shrunk our overhead. This reminds me, I have a friend who I was just talking to recently. She also had a space that was like a big chunk of her overhead. And because of COVID, when her lease came up this summer, she decided to let it go. And she was really hesitant about it. But the second she let it go, she was like, oh, my God, you know, I'm continuing to get paid what I was before. But I don't have this this space anymore that I'm spending rent on. And all of a sudden, my bank account is doing so well. It was such a, a small change that she wouldn't have done. I was suggesting she do it last year when she was struggling with her cash flow. And she said, no, the space is really important. The space is really important. Second, she let it go. She was like, oh my God, why didn't I do this before? Um, Sometimes it's pretty small tweaks that can make a massive difference financially. And I think we get stuck in our habits, our habits of how we think and how we are, that we don't look at the opportunities or possibilities that might be right in front of us. For me, that was the employees. I was not even considering letting the employees go until we were backed into a corner that we couldn't get out of. And it was only because Steve suggested it and I fought him and then eventually gave in. And that was a, that changed everything. My friend, she would never have let that space go if it hadn't been for COVID. And now that she did it, like immediately she felt different. Okay. So I just told you this long story about how our money evolved and, and, and our finances. But what I didn't tell you is how my perspective on all of it evolved. So I think the way that I have shifted over the years and been able to go from $65 is a lot of money an hour to when people pay me $500 an hour, I'm like, you're getting a deal (laughs) because I charge more than that. I mean, that's a huge change, right? It's really not that much time. That is less than seven years for for that change. And obviously, there's been a lot of changes along the way. I didn't just jump from 65 to 500. I credit a lot of that mindset shift in how much things cost to how much I've been willing to invest in myself. So my first business coach that I hired was Evan Horowitz, who I had on this show. Was he my first? I don't know. He was a very important one. And when I hired Evan, he was $1,000 a month for four calls. And that was so much money to me. I mean, that was more than all the other business coaches that I had seen in BNI. But I don't know. I believed him. I thought he was great. Ended up being right. But investing $1,000 a month was such a big leap for me. But it it helped me change how I saw $1,000 for coaching. I have since spent a lot of money on my business. I remember the first time I spent $6,000 in one sitting. I remember the first time I spent $10,000 in one sitting, $15,000. I spent $15,000 in one day on two different things. So I spent $30,000 one day. These were huge 
leaps for me, right? I was freaking out about 350 on a can of beans in 2011. And then in 2017, I spent $30,000 in one sitting. These are steps that I took that I had to work up to. But while I was making those massive outlays for my business, I was also getting much more comfortable charging that much. I didn't just spend that money frivolously. I spent it because I had shifted from looking at dollars as this costs $15,000, which, geez, anything that costs $15,000 is too much, to this $15,000 is going to make me $100,000 in the next 12 months. Actually, this $15,000, when it makes me $100,000 in the next 12 months, that means it's going to make me $200,000 the next year. Like I'm not investing in this thing for just the immediate ROI. I'm investing for the ROI that's going to come forever. That $1,000 a month that I, that I invested in Evan Horowitz oh so many years ago has been paying dividends since, literally since, because Evan helped me, he helped me find the word badass, which you can never... <laughs> You can never count on that kind of value is going to come out of a a working relationship. But also like I ran with it. Somebody else might have been like, no, that's too, that's too aggressive. And then that would have been gone. Right. So it's not just about you spending money and investing in yourself. It's about you then taking, picking up what the other person is putting down. You know what I'm saying? You need to actually be there to make value out of it. He's the person who told me I should start blogging. He's the person who told me I should start speaking and help me get just, I mean, he didn't even, not to take away from him, but he didn't even do anything for it. He just told me I should and was there when I was trying to figure it out and encouraging me and giving me pointers here and there. But all of those things are the reason that I built my business today. And ever since then, all the things that I've invested in have given me little bits like that, that continue to influence how I do things today. I spent $15,000 on a sales company once, a sales team. So they were going to be the ones to uh, take calls and, and sell people into a program that is now defunct. And it went pretty badly. Like, they didn't end up delivering the way that they promised that they would. But it wasn't because they didn't try. It was because of a whole bunch of things that in retrospect, I now see and I understand. And I'll briefly tell you, they should have insisted that I sell the things on the phone first and then take my script and and listen to my calls and then use that to learn. But they didn't. They were willing to take me without having me having sold them myself first because they believed in my brand and because I looked really legit and they thought they could sell it, but they couldn't. They needed me to do that first. That should have been a prerequisite. And I hope I told them when I left, when I, when I told them we couldn't keep working together, I told them you need to make that a prerequisite because that was the missing, that was one of the missing pieces. Basically I wasn't far enough along for them. And because my brand looked so good, they thought they could get away with doing it without me doing the thing that they usually require of their clients. But it didn't just teach me that about hiring people. I mean, that's a massive lesson that I had to learn. And it cost me $15,000, but so what? You know, that is a lesson that I have taken with me from then on. 
and has probably stopped me from spending a lot more money on a lot of different things. Because that lesson that I learned was you need to be confident enough in the kinds of clients that you want that you will say no to a client when they're not a perfect fit. Even though I know and believe that, I also am wary of people. I need to push them to make sure that they're not saying yes to me because they want the money and instead making sure that I am a perfect fit for them. So that was a lesson. Now when I hire people, I am more diligent about that. I would have had to learn that lesson no matter what. But my point is changing my perspective from cash going out is losing money and spending it versus investing in myself and my business is going to be valuable no matter what happens because I will make it valuable. And because I also want to give myself a break. I can't possibly see the future and know what's going to happen when I invest in this or that. All I can do is take a leap of faith, invest in something, and then do my best to make sure that that investment is protected and do my best to make sure that that investment gives me something back of value. I see way too many people investing in things. And we're not talking $15,000. We're talking, I bought a $500 course and and it didn't work. And I'm upset. And that's why I'm not going to invest in myself again. Do you know how limiting (laughs) that perspective is? I mean, first of all, I spent money on a course and it didn't work for me is already bullshit. Sorry. There are good courses and there are bad courses. Don't get me wrong. But Any course has enough value to be worth $500 or $1,000. You have to get that value. Now, some of them might, you know, be boring to watch, might be poorly laid out. I'm not I'm not saying they're all, you know, roses, but but there's plenty of value to get out of it because any course is going to be the downloaded information from the expert, you know, months, years of of experience where they're trying to share it with you. So it's a good example of get that value. If you didn't get value out of it, go watch it again and find the value. And you know what? If there is literally not a drop of value to get, then get the value of looking at it and saying, well, now I know how to evaluate a course the next time I buy one. Or here's how I don't want to make my course. Or just looking at their business model. There's always more value there than you, than it's necessarily obvious at first. But also, If you say to me, I invested in this thing and it didn't work, so now I don't want to invest more in myself, you are so limiting the opportunities for yourself. You're giving yourself an excuse, really, to not keep pushing your business forward. And if you start looking at investing in yourself as valuable no matter what, even if this investment goes nowhere, as long as you show up to get the value, you can make it worth it. So what I want to leave you with today is I would really take some time and explore your own money stories because I have found that looking back and thinking about how I grew up and what I saw in my environment and what I believed to be true, what I was told was true and how much that influenced the way that I saw money as I became an adult and what it took to free myself from those stories has been incredibly powerful. So one thing you could do to explore your own money stories would be to just answer some simple questions and find the stories that come to mind. What things are okay to spend money on? What are things that you shouldn't spend money on? You know, what what is 
what is an expensive house? What is an expensive car? What is an expensive meal at a restaurant? What do you think about people who have lots of money? What do you think money does to people? What do you think is stopping you from having a lot of money? Is there something in your way? Growing up, what were you told about money? How much is too much to spend on building a life you want? How much would you spend if you knew that it would increase your income next year by $100,000? What would you be willing to spend now so that you could have the exact business you always wanted in three years? A lot of these ideas are things that we don't even know we are walking around with, and they're influencing all of the decisions that we make. I remember reading once that car companies use the fact that we buy things based on comparative pricing and how relative things are in the moment. They use that to upsell you. So for example, maybe a car is $20,000, but then if you want the sunroof, that's another $2,000. And then if you want the, I've never bought a car, so I don't know. But you know, then you want uh, the leather seats, that's another $1,000. Or maybe if you want a cup holder, it's like another $200. And all of a sudden, you're just adding on $200 for cup holders when that's insane. <laughs> cup holders shouldn't be $200, but you're already you know, $25,000 into this car. So $200 doesn't sound like a lot. But meanwhile, you might then turn around and go to the supermarket that day and not buy a carton of raspberries because they are $5.99 instead of $4.99. And you'll go, $5.99 for raspberries? That's so expensive. I'm not buying those. But if they had been $4.99 or $3.99, you would have bought them. So because you don't want to spend an extra dollar or two, you're not going to get the raspberries you want. But because in the car store, the cup holders are only $200 compared to $25,000. Well, you'll just add those on without even thinking about it. And we make decisions about how we spend money in our, in our life all day long like this. It all is relative. It's all perspective on what we think is expensive or not. I'll tell you another funny story. I was with someone on their boat. So this was my, my friend's dad has this huge boat, like a, a very big expensive boat, but also not a fancy one. So like a little more like boat people, you know, they're like pride themselves on the boats being, I don't know, it's a wooden boat. So it's not like a fancy yacht, but it's a big wooden boat. Anyway, we go to the, I got to go on this boat and we went to the gas station. We had to pull up to the gas station to fill it up. And I watched um, them fill up the tank. Half a tank of gas was $1,000. So we're at this port. They're putting half a tank of gas because you don't want to put the full tank, apparently, because it weighs the boat down and it actually makes it more expensive because it's using more gas, whatever. Anyway, while they're filling up the tank with $1,000 worth of gas, they say to us, hey, guys, go down. Oh, I see a Starbucks. Go grab some sugar packets for our coffee. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that just say it all? And I notice myself doing this stuff all the time, too. It's very funny. And, you know, I shouldn't tell you this, but the, the downside of noticing it is that Steve and I are always like, OK, so then just buy it because everything to me is convenience now. I'm not going to go out of my way to go to that other store to save two dollars. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to go out of my way to save twenty dollars here. It doesn't make any sense. Once you start realizing what your time is worth and what your time should be spent doing, you don't want to waste any time doing anything that can be shortcut 
by spending a little bit more money. And, and that's really ultimately where I want all of you to get. Truly understanding the value of your business and your time so that you can spend it only doing the things that make sense and are valuable to do to you. But your money mindset is going to have a huge effect on that because there are people out there who understand that they are worth a lot of money and will not budge on their price, which is great, but then they will turn around and waste an hour of their time to go to the far supermarket to spend, to save an extra 20 bucks. You know, before I was thinking like this, I would spend two hours going to Costco to buy food in bulk for cheaper. And you know what? When I finally went and sat down and looked at what it cost to just order the food from Costco and have them deliver it, so what? It's 50 bucks less. So what? Two, three hours of my time is not worth $50? Of course it is. I am doing so much more valuable stuff in two or three hours of work. And it's not that I want to always trade that in. It's like, and if I'm not doing that, I want to go do something else for myself because I don't want to waste three hours at Costco. And these are the kinds of shifts that will take time to move over to. But I strongly encourage you to at least start small by looking at your money stories and start paying attention to how you spend your money and where you make decisions in relativity that's actually not in your best interest. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss. Make sure you subscribe and share this with any friends who need to hear it. And I will see you next week.